Well, our series is called 238, The Numbers of Help, and this is part two. And in this Bible study series, it's not very long, but we are talking about the most important message in Scripture, and that is how to get saved. Because if you don't get this message, it doesn't matter how much you might enjoy or benefit from any other message we preach or teach here. If you don't get this one, nothing else really matters. As I said last week, I haven't met many people. Maybe you have. Maybe they're all hiding from me. I have met many people who don't like our church. Over and over, people come by. They come for a service. They visit. And they speak about the move of God that is here. And I'm so grateful for that. But for many of them, while they sense what is different, they're not exactly sure why it is different. I told you last week, I can answer that question in one word, and that word is doctrine. Because we teach what the New Testament church taught, and we do what the New Testament church did, and we reach for what the New Testament church reached for, so we get to experience what the New Testament church experienced, and we make no apologies for any of that. Many people today are looking for a church that will interpret the Bible in accordance with what they believe. They want a church that will kind of affirm that they're okay as they are, tell them they're going to heaven, and not interfere too much with their everyday life and their lifestyle. And I'll just say it right at the outset and offend everybody in one sentence, we're not that kind of church. Uh, we're not trying to be, we're not desiring to be. We preach the Bible, even when it challenges us to grow or confronts our comfort zone. We preach the Bible even when it disturbs the status quo or disagrees with political correctness. We preach the Bible even when it teaches commitment and obedience, even when it calls us to holiness in our lifestyle and separation from the world. Even when it preaches living by faith and dying to self, we still preach the Bible. Even when it demands sacrifice and submission. Even when we don't really understand exactly why God would ask us for that, we still preach the Bible. And we still preach the Word of God even if it ever makes us stand alone. Today, the only absolute in our culture seems to be no absolutes. Have you noticed that? Everything in our culture is on the auction block to the lowest bidder. Morality and sexuality have been maligned and redefined. Lawlessness and violence have been accepted for so long that they have now become expected. The media has redefined normal and glamorized evil until it has become its own self-fulfilling prophecy. Truth itself is now supposed to be flexible and even individual. And it is into this end-time cesspool of sin that the final generation of the apostolic church has been called to preach the gospel. Now... I'll just be up front with you. Uh, you can take issue with this if you want. But to mimic the majority of Christianity and to try to bend the church to the will, the wishes, and the whims of the world is not our goal. In fact, we think that's a pointless exercise, a fool's errand, a waste of time, and a lost cause. 
Because here's what we see in the Word of God and in church history. Becoming like the world will never win the world. It will never change the world. It will never impact the world. It will never help the world. And it surely will never save the world. And that's why with as much love and humility as we could ever muster, we say to people, everyone is welcome in this church. Everyone is welcome to come as you are, but we're going to remain as we are. No amount of discussion or debate will change us. No amount of ridicule or rejection will intimidate us. The message the apostles preached is far too important. The salvation Jesus paid for is far too precious. The experience we have is far too wonderful, and eternity is far, far too long to be wrong. I said this last week, and then we'll dive on into tonight's lesson. To say that all truths are equal which is a mantra out there today, all truths are equal. That is a logical fallacy. Even major Christian denominations teach vastly different theologies and contradict each other on many points. So it's a logical fallacy to think that they're all right. But they've come up with a unique solution in this generation. Just ignore the inconsistencies, promote unity over theology, and dumb down doctrine to the lowest common denominator. And you've heard the mantra. I've heard it at gospel concerts. I've heard it in church services. Let's just love Jesus and forget doctrine because we're all going to the same place anyway. My challenge with that is that the apostles would have had a real problem with that idea. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them because if you continue in doctrine, Timothy, you will save both yourself and everybody that hears you teach and preach and witness. He said to the Romans, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Keep your distance. Be careful. If you listen to the voices today, you would think that anybody that stands up for doctrine, they're the problem. They're the ones causing division. Paul said, not so. You watch the people that are against doctrine, that are letting doctrine uh, go the way of the dodo bird, that are, are teaching things that are contrary to the doctrine that you were taught, and you be careful of them. You mark them. You avoid them. The gospel writers repeatedly record that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' doctrine. Not because its style was exceptional. Jesus didn't know what PowerPoint was. Well, he probably did, but not in his limited humanity on this earth. Jesus didn't have PowerPoint and media and all of that. So it wasn't some exceptional style to his teaching. It was that the substance of his teaching was supernatural. He taught with anointed authority. And so they wondered after his doctrine. And today, Bible doctrine, we understand it to be the very substance, the very essence, the very foundation of our faith. Now, you've got to be careful and distinguish doctrine from dogma. Doctrine 
is different than dogma. Dogma is man's statement of truth as set forth in a creed. But doctrine is God's revelation of truth as set forth in the scriptures. And that is why doctrine is far stronger and more powerful than just man's dogma, religious teaching. Doctrine has supernatural power when it is believed. That's why the Apostle Paul was so cautious about the transition in the church of his day. He was afraid that a generation would come after him that would neglect doctrine. He said there's coming a generation that will reject sound doctrine. And I've got to tell you that no generation fulfills his words better than ours. Here's what he said. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine will be a burden to them. Doctrine will be distasteful to them. Doctrine will be boring to them. He said after their own lust they will heap to themselves teachers. Lots of religious voices because they have itching ears. They want the teachers to tell them what they want to hear. That's the generation that we live in for sure. Now let me tell you a little bit about us. Uh, we're apostolic by doctrine and experience, and we're very happy and privileged and honored by that. Now, let me tell you something about these apostolic people. Look around. I'm going to talk about your neighbor so you can look at them first. There are a couple of words that the theologians uh, fly around, and theologians love long words. So here we go. Apostolics are not cessationists. Everyone say cessationist. We are not cessationists. Cessationists believe that speaking in tongues, apostles and prophets, divine healing, miracles, spiritual gifts, all of that, that all of that ceased after the first century. We read it in the Bible. They believe it was true back then. It happened back then. But it stopped after the first century church. And they believe, if you're a cessationist, they believe that these experiences are no longer available to believers today. They look at church history and they look at most of the denominations today and they say, well, there's proof. Most of the denominations don't have these experiences and most of church history isn't filled with these experiences to which I would say, well, it's probably a little late to try to tell us that none of this happens anymore when we've got it. So this, we're not cessationists. We're not even close neighbors. Apostolics are another word. The theologians use this word to describe some of what we believe. We are continuationists. Everybody say that one. That's a, that's a multi-syllable word you can use to impress somebody over dinner. Everyone say continuationist. That's part of what we are. Continuationists, they believe, we believe, that all of the beliefs and all of the experiences and all of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, they did not stop after the first century. And in fact, they are still available to believers today. I have had the incredible honor and the great privilege of traveling to many different corners of the world on a bunch of different 
continents in a couple, three dozen different nations. And here's what I know. Wherever you've got apostolic people, there are all kinds of great things happening just like they happened in the first century. They're speaking in tongues. There's miracles. There's divine healing. There's apostles and prophets helping to lead the church. It's all still available. It's all still active. And can you imagine we get to be part of that kind of a church in the last days? Now that's a privilege. That's awesome. But I would say, and I'm not a theologian, I'm just a pastor. So I would say that we are definitely not cessationists. We definitely are continuationists, but I would use a different word for us. Apostolics are restorationists. We believe that church history actually departed from Scripture. And we believe that in church history, false doctrines were allowed to creep in to the stream of the church and secular philosophies and worldly lifestyles and pagan practices. They all started creeping into the church after the apostles were gone. And all of that junk eventually plunged a corrupted church into the dark ages. Now, we are restorationists. We believe you can reach past every creed and counsel, every mistake, every false doctrine, every pagan practice of church history. We are restorationists. We believe you can reach all the way back to the book of Acts and you can get your hand on original truth, on original experience, on original doctrine, and you can pull that forward from the first century into the 21st century and you can have it because Jesus said you can have it. That's what we believe. We believe that the 16th century Protestant Reformation, while it rejected the errors of the Catholic Church, and it turned around and headed back in the right direction, we believe that the Protestant Reformation failed to arrive at its intended destination. What was the intended destination of the Protestant Reformation? They said it this way, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's where they were headed. That's the destination they pointed toward. We're not going to accept all these doctrines that have crept in. We're not going to accept all of this man-made stuff and all this paganism that's in the church. We want scripture alone. And they headed that direction, but they didn't get there. And that's why in the Protestant movement today, there are so many different denominations. And they teach so many divergent doctrines. And they preach so many variations on the plan of salvation because they didn't get all the way back to Scripture only. We also believe that the 19th century holiness movement and the early 20th century Pentecostal awakening... They did some good things. They rejected the deadness they saw in all the denominations around them. And they too turned around and headed back toward the Bible. They headed in the right direction. But they also stopped short of their intended destination. 
What was their intended destination? It was the book of Acts. That's what they were studying in those Bible school meetings. That's what they were preaching about. That's what they were praying for. That's what they were believing in. But many of their descendants didn't make it all the way back to the book of Acts. And that's why some of their descendants don't believe in the oneness of God. And some of them don't believe in baptism in the only saving name of Jesus. And some of them don't even believe in the necessity of speaking in tongues. And so they didn't make it all the way back either. They stopped short. But apostolics are restorationists. We insist that any church tradition should take a back seat to the Bible narrative. If it's written in the Bible and your tradition disagrees with it, we insist that tradition takes a back seat to the Scripture. We insist that Scripture should speak for itself, regardless of what anybody else's opinion says. We insist that the message of the apostles of the first century should still be preached in the 21st century. We insist on that. And because we believe that the because the Bible declares it, we still believe even in the last of the last days and the end of the end times, we still believe because the Bible declares it that restoration is coming and revival is coming and revelation is coming to our world. We still dare to believe what Habakkuk prophesied. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We still believe what Haggai prophesied. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. We still believe what Zechariah prophesied. At evening time, there shall be light. And we definitely believe what Joel prophesied. It shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. That's the apostolic church. So when we turn our little canoe around and we head back upstream to our origins, our destination is not a church council or a denomination. Our destination is the book of Acts. Our heart's desire is Pentecostal fire. Our true north is the, ap the, the apostolic doctrine. And our compass points to Acts 2 38. We refuse to stop short. We want everything that the Bible says we can have. <laughs> oh, just wait a minute, Pastor Raymond. Isn't that quite arrogant? Isn't that judgmental and divisive? Are you saying that you are right? And everybody else is wrong? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no. Dear brother, sister, I want to put your mind at rest. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that everybody else is wrong and we're right. I'm saying everybody else is wrong and the Bible is right. That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. There's only one salvation message preached by the original apostolic church. And that's what we strive for. So with all of that in mind, 
let's dive in a little deeper tonight. The word gospel that we throw around, gospel, that is from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell. And it means a God message or a good story. We use a transliterated term, good news, in place of the Greek word uh, euangelion. And we usually think when we say gospel, and we think in our mind that's the good news, we usually think only of the, the message of the gospel, only of the tidings that are preached when we present the gospel. But in the Greek language, the word euangelion actually signifies something more. It's a circular word. It's a word that would have been used in that day when a, a messenger came into the city with news of a victory on a battlefield somewhere. And when the messenger brought the good news, the entire city would respond. They would cheer. They would decorate the streets. They would have parades, whatever they could do in their town or village or city. Because euangelion is not just a one-way word. It's not only the good news that comes. It's the response to the good news. It's the response to the messenger of the good news. In fact, one meaning of this word, it's a sacrifice offered in thanksgiving for such good tidings having come. In other words, when good news came, even among the pagans, they'd offer some kind of sacrifice to whatever God they thought was their God. It, it's, it's a word that means the good news comes and the good news is responded to. The good news is communicated, but then there's a reaction to the good news. And only when you have the good news presented and the good news responded to, only then do you have euangelion. Only then do you have the gospel. So, what I'm saying is this. The gospel is not only the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the good news. But to have a gospel message, it also must mean our response. And our response to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is our obedience to the plan of salvation. Without a biblical response, the gospel is incomplete. Now, we don't have to guess what the gospel is because Paul told us exactly what it is when he wrote to the Corinthians. Here's what he said. Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Everyone say the gospel. I declare to you the gospel. This is what I preach to you. This is what you received. This is where you stand before God. And this is how you're saved. And he said, but you got to keep in memory what I preached unto you or else you've believed in vain. Now here's the gospel. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. See, Paul wasn't at the crucifixion. Paul wasn't there when they buried Jesus' body in the grave. Paul wasn't there when he rose from the dead. But Paul was a persecutor of that church. And so Paul received the gospel 
Not because he was there on the day of Pentecost, but because Jesus revealed the gospel to Paul. So he had it nailed down. Here's what he said. I delivered, first of all, that which I also received. Here it goes, the gospel. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So we don't have to guess what the gospel is. Paul tells us emphatically and plainly, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we also don't have to guess because Peter told us exactly how to obey the gospel in that scripture verse that this series is centered around. Here's what Peter said. Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter tells us exactly how to respond to the gospel, exactly how to obey the gospel, exactly how to apply the gospel. Peter tells us how that circle should be completed. The gospel message comes to us and here's how we respond back to God. It is through repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. This is, folks, 238. It is the numbers of help. Most Christian denominations today do a wonderful job preaching the gospel message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They do a wonderful job preaching the gospel message. But... By the same token, most Christian denominations today stop short of telling people how to obey the gospel message. So, if I can just be blunt and honest, they skip the most important part. How do you respond to what Jesus did for you? Now, some of them would say, well, we don't stop short. We believe in repentance and baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But even if they don't stop short theologically, many of them stop short practically and in reality because they no longer teach that any of what I just said is essential. And if it's not essential, that means over time you end up with a church or a congregation or a denomination or a movement that only a handful of those people have actually experienced what they say they actually believe. Many times this is due to the cumulative effect of weak preaching over many years. Sometimes weak preaching is because they want to please everybody in the church pews. Sometimes it's to comfort people at funerals when somebody dies. They want to put everybody in heaven. Sometimes they have weak preaching because they're trying to attract as many people as possible without having to ever ask for commitment or life change. Their intentions may be good to gather a lot of people around the gospel, but the results are spiritually fatal if nobody ever fully obeys the gospel because without obeying the gospel, the gospel doesn't get applied to your life. And if you want to know the fallout of that kind of cumulative effect of weak preaching over many years, all you would need to do is go on your computer and Google the characteristics and the statistics of the millennial generation of Christians. According to the Pew Research Center, 8% of them don't know if they believe in God. 
9% of them live together outside of marriage. 23% of them don't believe in hell. 44% of them believe abortion should be legal. 44% say they don't pray consistently. 57% of them don't attend church consistently. 63% of them don't read the Bible consistently. 63% of them don't look to the Bible for guidance on right and wrong. 62% of them believe that human beings evolved. 62% of them favor strongly same-sex marriage. 69% of them believe homosexuality should be accepted and promoted. 71% of them believe right and wrong depends on the situation. 71% of them don't believe the Bible should be taken literally. And yet, despite all of that, 89% of them feel like they're still going to heaven. That's the generation that weak preaching has produced in Christianity. Now, let me be honest. Perhaps you're here tonight or you're watching online and you hold some of these beliefs and practices. Let me tell you, we respect your right to your opinions and convictions. After all, Canada is a democracy. And if we as a church are going to reap the benefits of a democracy and the, the country allows us to preach the truth and the Bible, then we need to afford everybody else in Canada the same liberty and right to have their opinion and their beliefs. And that actually probably should get an amen if you're thankful for the liberty that we have in our nation because many people don't. Canada is a democracy. So all opinions and beliefs, all philosophies and thoughts, all doctrines are welcome in a democracy. But let's not be intellectually dishonest enough to pretend that any of what I just read in those statistics, let's not pretend that any of them are actually biblical beliefs and practices. You have a right to your opinion. What you don't have a right to do is say, uh, my opinion is biblical when the Bible says your opinion is false. And that's where the apostolic church, with love and respect for others, with humility, we often have to stand alone. Because to us, the Bible is not a religious textbook. The Bible is the word of God. Period. End of story. So, with apologies, we don't have the authority to alter Scripture in order to accommodate your opinion. A lot of Christians today have bought into this idea. Well, I believe in Jesus and that's all it takes. Well, the Apostle James grew up in the same house as Jesus. Jesus was his half-brother. And he became one of Jesus' disciples and then became a leader in the Jerusalem church. James had a little bit of a close-up perspective on what Jesus thought. And he would disagree with the idea, I believe in Jesus, and that's all it takes. Here's what James said. Even so, faith, if it has no works, it's dead, being alone. A man may say, well, you have faith and I have works. You do your, your way, I'll do it my way. James said, you show me your faith without your works, but I choose to show you my faith by my works. And he gets a little ironic. He said, you believe there's one God. Well, you're doing really good. 
The devil believes that. The devils believe that. And they tremble. At least the devils get excited about it. <laughs> but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works, faith without you doing anything, faith without works is dead. James says it unequivocally. Faith that doesn't do anything is dead faith. So let me put this very plainly before we head toward a conclusion. Don't get your hopes up. It's a long conclusion. <laughs> if you never respond to the word of God, if you never submit to the word of God, if you never obey the word of God, then your faith is dead faith. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. And nowhere in the scripture is the reality of living faith more important. Faith that responds, faith that does something, faith that so submits and obeys. Nowhere is that more important than we, when we preach about salvation. You see, the gospel is not the gospel when you hear it. The gospel is not the gospel when you begin to understand it. The gospel is not the gospel when you accept it or even when you believe it. The gospel becomes the gospel in your life only when you obey it and only when you apply it. That is the New Testament pattern and it is the definition of the word euangelion, the good news, the gospel. There has to be a biblical response to that message. And that brings me to the beautiful story of the bridge. It's a simple, but I think profound way to visualize the gospel message that was preached by the apostles in the first century and God being our witness and God being our help. It is the message that is still preached by this church today because it's that important. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth, the opening words of your Bible. It all starts back in eternity. God, who never had a beginning, decided that creation would have a beginning. And so he created many marvelous things, and he declared each of them good. But when he created man, he smiled to himself. He smiled at the epitome of his creation and he said, it is very good. Now God could have existed forever by himself. He's God. He is self-powered and self-sustaining. He could have existed forever by himself. But God is so loving that he desired relationship. So he took a massive risk to have relationship and he created man. Adam and Eve were far more complex than the angels. They were full of questions and they had personality and they had stubborn traits and they had endless idiosyncrasies and sometimes they even made tragic mistakes. But they had the potential for love. And with that love, they had the potential of a depth of worship that even the angels could never know. I have to pause to say, do you understand how much Jesus is attracted to your worship? 
You can give him something that the angels can't. They're created to do exactly what he tells them to do unless you flip the switch of rebellion and then they become demons and devils. But you, you are a bundle of, of potential in God. You have the capacity to love God deeply and to worship him with exuberance and you should do that at every moment that you have the opportunity because he waits for your worship. That's what he created you for, to have relationship with him and him to have relationship with you. So you know how you see your friend, you say, hey, across the parking lot. I just like to pause and say, hey, Jesus, we're here and we love you. Would you lift up everything you got to the Lord for just a moment? He's so good to us. He created us to be his people. We are so blessed, so honored, so privileged. You cannot imagine what God has invested in you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Uh, Oh my. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You, all of humanity, dating all the way back to Adam and Eve, humanity would be a source of endless delight to God. But just like your children are a source of endless delight to you, because they are so close to you and you love them so much, those same children also have the potential and the capacity to wound you deeply. And that's the same with God. The children that he created to love him and have relationship with him, they also have the capacity to wound him deeply simply because they are his children. And wound him they did. When Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God's commandments. And they sinned against their heavenly father. And walked away from his love. They listened to Lucifer's lies. And in a moment it was all over. Sin had now entered their lives. Separating them from his holy, holiness. Now a perfect God was on one side of a gaping chasm and his imperfect children were stranded on the other side. They had chosen a life that didn't include him and they had broken his heart in the process. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this. He said, your iniquities, your sins have separated between you and God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You created the chasm between you and God. Now, human beings, we are all the same. We think we are such rugged individuals, but we are really all the same. And we all subconsciously feel this separation from God. So in one way or another, whether we say we know God or love God or believe God or hate God, we all subconsciously spend our lives trying to bridge this massive emptiness, this void, this chasm between us and God. And for some people, they try to jump over that chasm by being a good person. For others, they try to be uh, somebody that's very religious. For some, they try to achieve great things. And for some, they give their lives to noble causes. 
And for many people, it's just any pleasure, any drug, any distraction, anything that can take their mind off that gaping canyon, that empty void inside them for just a few minutes. Now, we're all individuals, so some of our efforts are more impressive than others. Some of us even lull ourselves into the false belief that we've somehow succeeded in bridging the gap. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, this would be like trying to jump across the Atlantic Ocean. You might get further than me, but in the end, neither one of us are going to make it. None of us, none of us have what it takes to get back to the glory that God intended for us. And that's why the book of Romans concludes, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that would be terrible. That would be tragic. That would be a travesty. But it's far worse than that. Because at the bottom of this canyon, this uncrossable chasm, at the bottom is a place called hell. It's a place, not of physical death, but of eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Please hear me. And for every human being ever born, that is our default destination because of sin. Because you are created in the image of God. You don't just die. We have a funeral here tomorrow for a great man of God in our church. You don't just die. You don't just cease to exist. Your spirit is eternal. For the child of God, that's wonderful news. But for everybody else, it's fearful news. Your spirit is eternal. And one way or another, at the end of a million millennia, you are still going to exist and the only question is, where? If the joy and the glory of being in God's presence in heaven, if that is beyond our wildest imagination, then the darkness and the horror and the agony of being without him forever in hell, that's beyond your worst nightmare. But the Bible declares it to be a fact. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now in our modern enlightened age, some people ask very smug intellectual questions. How could you believe in a God who allows evil to exist? Well, the simple answer is, it's we human beings who allow evil to exist. We allowed it to exist in the past, and we still do today. Evil breaks God's heart for one very important reason, because evil breaks his fellowship with you. There are many voices today, they decry a God who says he will end all of time with a day of judgment, as if that is somehow unfair. Let me tell you something. In reality... A final judgment is the only thing that is fair. As long as there is evil in this world, there has to be a judgment. 
Every sin, every wrong, every evil, it has to be brought to an end. Without it, there would be no hope. Without judgment, there would be no end to the evil in the universe or to the evil in man's heart. Without judgment, there would be no heaven. Without, he without judgment, heaven would be filled with locks and prisons and hatred and violence and addiction and bondage and fear and destruction. Heaven would cease to be heaven and it would become hell instead. But I'm here to tell you tonight, there is a heaven. It is a place of no more sorrow, sickness, hatred, injustice, tears, or pain. There must be a judgment. Evil must end. And beyond that judgment is heaven. But our problem is, we have no way to get to heaven because of that canyon between us and God. The devil's a deceiver and a liar, and he hates God's children with a violent hatred. He will do anything, tell any lie, offer any temptation just to keep you out of heaven because he knows he can never return there, and that's it. He's just that selfish. If he can't have it, he doesn't want you to have it. And besides, he wants to break God's heart one final time by having you, one of God's creation, one of God's children. He wants to have you devote your life to anything except eternity because the devil knows very well that eternity is all that matters. Eternity is everything. And that's why the devil's plan was so cunning and so cruel because now no human being can make it into heaven. How far does one small sin remove you from the infinite righteousness of God? One small sin removes you from God an infinite distance. So how far are we from heaven? Well, we're an infinite distance from heaven. We can't get there from here. How great would judgment have to be to rid us of sin? It would have to be infinitely great. How long would we have to suffer in judgment to bridge the gap that exists between us and God's perfection? Well, we would have to suffer an infinity of time to make up that gap and to pay for our sin. And that's exactly what hell is. Hell is how much and how long we would have to suffer to pay for our own sins. And that's why the devil wants you to go there forever. That's bad news, Pastor. Yeah, it is. But tell me, if you have an infinite gap and an infinite problem, what do you need? You need an infinite answer, which means that the answer cannot possibly come from you yourself. It cannot possibly come from this world. An infinite answer can only come from the infinite. It can only come from heaven, from God, from the scripture. That means that any given answer, any given ideology, any given system or religion that is based on the efforts of man, it's automatically ruled out. Every answer based on man trying to reach God, any answer based on a hand reaching up toward heaven, that's instantly ruled out. We can't bridge that gulf. 
The answer can only come from the other direction. From the infinite to the finite. From heaven to earth. From God to man. And so, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When the word son is used in reference to God in scripture, it's talking about the body that God inhabited when he robed himself in flesh and walked among us. We call that the incarnation. When we couldn't get to heaven, God came to earth. He did not send somebody else. He came himself. And the devil Satan, he had not counted on the absolute genius of the architect of all creation. Even before the devil made his cunning, sinister move in the Garden of Eden, God had already put his plan in motion. He already had in mind a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What's that mean, Pastor? It means when we couldn't pay the price for our sins, God paid the price for our sins. He took on a human nature that he had never had so we could take on a divine nature that we had never had and we call that glorious truth redemption salvation it's amazing it's an eternal privilege and honor to be called a child of the living God he came here for us but it's a common misconception it is not the life of Jesus that saves us. It is not the teaching of Jesus that saves us. In fact, the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, they're so holy and righteous, they condemn us. No, when God wanted to save us, it cost heaven much more than just the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. It cost heaven the death of Jesus. Peter said it this way, For Christ also hath suffered, once suffered, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. This was the genius of God's plan. God up in heaven couldn't help us because of his perfection. But here on earth, man couldn't help us because of his imperfection. So God took on a body of flesh so he could provide himself a lamb. God loved us enough to give himself as a sacrifice on Calvary. Jesus was both God and man. The incarnation was pure genius because after they mocked him, tortured him, nailed him to a cross, killed him, buried him. In three days, Jesus came out of that grave. That is what purchased our salvation. That is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And only God could do that. So when it comes to the gospel, brothers and sisters, God's part is already done.
But now there's a question that we see on the first day of church history when we hear the gospel message. Men and brethren, what shall we do? John wrote this, he said, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. To be saved, we must receive Jesus. We must believe on his name. Literally, we must invoke his name over our lives. And we must allow God to give us power to change our lives. Only the gospel, only the salvation provided by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross can bridge the chasm between us and God. Only Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have the power to cancel the penalty of your eternal death. So, what actually happens is that he dies on the cross, and the cross becomes the bridge. <laughs> the message of the cross is the centerpiece of Christianity. And what we do with the cross is the centerpiece of our eternity. Let me tell you something. Air Canada, by far, is my favorite airline. Not just because I live in Canada, although that could be considered a no-brainer. But it's because of their exceptional service that I've enjoyed over many years. They were the first North American airline when COVID-19 hit, nobody could fly anywhere. They were the first airline to extend their customers' frequent flyer status. I don't like status. I don't like people who like status, but I love airline status. Just let me confess. They extended their frequent flyer status for their customers, not just one full year, but two full years. I'm a bona fide top tier Air Canada super elite till the end of 2022. Thank you very much. I haven't flown a flight for as long as I can remember. I don't even remember what an airplane looks like. And so because of all of that, I'm loyal to Air Canada. I believe in Air Canada. I have faith in Air Canada. I love Air Canada. But I can go to any airport in the Dominion and stand on the tarmac and look at the planes with love in my eyes. And I can express all of the above. But if I don't actually get on a plane, I'm not going anywhere. And it's the same with the gospel. You see, basically every Christian denomination today believes in the bridge. That Jesus provided the only way to restore our relationship with God. And that somehow we need to receive him and we need to believe on his name and we need to allow God to give us his power. But the question is, how? That's the question. Is it just something we accept by faith or is there more? Is there something that our faith causes us to do? Like the apostle James said. Most Christian denominations preach the gospel message, but, and here's the danger, most Christian denominations stop short of telling people the biblical way to obey the gospel. They literally skip the most important part. But thankfully, the apostle Peter told us exactly 
what to do on the first day of church history. And you might know the scripture reference to this verse by now. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. See, here's how it works. And we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the grave and then he resurrected on the third day. Peter said, repent of your sins, be baptized, be buried in water in his name and he will give you the Holy Ghost, the power of God. John said, you remember, for John 1 verse 12, John said, receive him, believe on his name, invoke his name, and he will give you the power to become his child. Do you see a pattern here? Death, burial, resurrection, repentance, water baptism, the baptism of the Holy Ghost receive him, believe on his name, invoke his name over your life, and you'll receive power to become a child of God. That's the pattern. So the cross becomes the bridge through faith. But we can only cross over the bridge through obedience. And that's why 238 is so important. It's not enough just to look at the bridge and admire the bridge and believe in the bridge and sing about the bridge. You got to make up your mind. I'm going to obey the scripture and cross over the bridge. Years ago, back around the time I was in Bible college, Canadian songwriter Gordon Jensen penned these words. Stained with the blood of the Son of God, millions have safely crossed the small wooden bridge between fortune and loss, Calvary's old rugged cross. Paul said the preaching of the cross is to all of the people that are perishing. It's to them foolishness. They mock this. They malign this. Some of them, they're innocent, but they just misunderstand this. But to us who are saved, the cross is the power of God. It's how we're in this thing. It's how we get to heaven. It started the redemption process for us. Paul said to the Romans, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It came to the Jew first. But aren't you glad all you Gentiles in Canada? It's also for everybody else. It's also for the Gentiles. It's also to the Greek. And so I close by reminding you that 238 is the only way biblically to cross that bridge. 238 is the original altar call of the original church. It's exactly what Jesus told his apostles to preach. And that is why, without apology, without fear or favor, when we preach or teach, our pattern is the book of Acts. Our heart's desire is Pentecostal fire. Our true north is the apostles' doctrine. Our spiritual compass points to Acts 2.38 because we refuse to stop short of everything God has for us. Why did the apostles preach it the way they preached it? Because Jesus told them to. The last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, he said unto them, Thus it is written, 
Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And here's what he told them to go do. And that repentance and remission of sins, you remember that from Acts 2? Baptism for the remission of sins. So that's repentance and baptism. Jesus said, I did all this so you could go preach, repent and be baptized in my name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. See, he said, I want you to go preach to people. These are the two things that you can do. You can repent of your sins and you can choose to be baptized in the only saving name of Jesus. He said, you're witnesses of these things. You walked with me. You saw me die. You saw me buried. You saw me rise again. And behold, if you'll preach what I told you to preach, and if people will have the courage to obey what you preach to them, if they will do what they can do, God will do what only he can do. Repentance and remission of sins will be preached in his name among all nations. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. What's that, Jesus? Oh, you'll find out. You go tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Here's what Jesus told his disciples. This is why the apostles preached what they did. He said, you go tell people you need to repent and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And if you'll do that, I will send power from on high. I will send the inheritance of my Father, the earnest of your inheritance. I will send you the Holy Ghost. It will be Christ in you, the hope of glory. God designed the bridge. God built the bridge. And God paid for the bridge with his own precious blood. All he asks us to do is cross the bridge. Is that so much to ask when so much is at stake? So all of life, brothers and sisters, comes down to one question. Where are you on the bridge? Have you never started your journey across? Have you only gone part way? You need to make sure that in your life, you get yourself and everybody you know and love Everybody you care about, do whatever it takes. But let's get people across the bridge. It is 238. It is the numbers of help. It is so beautiful and powerful. I've spent most of my life now studying all of this stuff. And I learned so much Every time I sit down and begin to open this up, it's so much deeper than what you could ever fathom. It's so much more powerful than what you've ever let yourself believe. And you possess it because you're an apostolic believer. Can you imagine that you, out of 7.9 billion people on this planet, you have had an opportunity to walk across the bridge and you will spend eternity in heaven with him, the author and the finisher of your faith, of your salvation. It's beautiful. I'm done. I'd love you not to be done. Would you lift up your hands and your voice and your praise and your worship and just thank God for the privilege 
of salvation. Thank God for the honor of redemption. Thank God for the message of the scripture. Thank God for the power of his word that can get in us and it can renovate everything we are and tear out our old past and give us a future and a hope. It's an amazing thing that we're in. It's the church of the living God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus.